0: Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. After four years and just over 200 conversations for this show, I'm feeling the need for a new kind of politics that would champion uncertainty, fragility, emotional vulnerability against the tyranny of opinions that push us one way or another. I used to think that art was sufficient for this purpose. After all, it was books like J.D. Salinger's Franny and Zoe, or The Brothers Karamazov, bands like The Smiths and The Velvet Underground that gave a much younger me courage to embrace ambiguity as a great teacher. Art's an open door, but you have to walk through it, and it's the politics and culture around you that shape your ability to do so. We're hurting and hungry for connection, sick of misunderstanding and violence. I think this is true all over the world. I think it runs so deep it's like an underground river, one whose presence we can only guess at from the contours of the surface earth. I'm very happy to be talking today with Turkish-born global citizen, novelist, and activist, Elif Shafak. She's the author of Honor, The Flea Palace, and Three Daughters of Eve, among many other books. In her writing and public speaking, she's one of the most eloquent voices I know of this new politics that doesn't fit easily on any flag. Welcome to Think Again, Elif.
1: Thank you so much.
0: I mean, let's start with Three Daughters of Eve, and let's start with the fact that it begins in a traffic jam, something that I've experienced in Istanbul, a very long, terrible traffic (laughs) jam, I guess, across the Bosphorus. Yeah. And then with a kind of escape. So your heroine or anti-heroine or somewhere in between Perry, she she ends up fleeing the traffic jam and in a sense fleeing safety, fleeing security, fleeing a kind of like bourgeois predictability into danger and it seems to me that that's kind of central to her and to what you're trying to get at in the book.
1: Absolutely, I think in so many of my books Istanbul plays a very central role so she and I say she deliberately because I always think Istanbul is a she city it's not like a passive decor or a a landscape or a background but rather than that I think she has a personality and a very strong presence of her own. I like to tell the stories of People living in Istanbul, surely, but maybe what I'm trying to say is as much as I'm drawn to stories, I'm also drawn to silences. You know, And I think storytellers need to give more voice to those people who have been silenced, to the ones who have been pushed to the periphery, to the margins, and to those stories that have been left untold, erased, forgotten, or sometimes even censored.
0: That reminds me of um, something that comes up a couple of times in different ways in Three Daughters of Eve, which is that you talk about basically all of the things that go unheard. I think at one point, Harry, her phone is lost or stolen, and, we, and her husband might be trying to call her. And we talk about how that's ringing. You talk about how that's ringing somewhere unheard, and how that all over the city that's the case, that there are stories and voices that are just unheard by the city.
1: And perhaps in a place like Istanbul this is quite striking because it is a city full of contrasts um, and it is a city with a very long and rich and complex history. Yet at the same time, I think in general in Turkey we are a society of collective amnesia. And I see a lot of widespread Mm. urban amnesia when I look at Istanbul. You know, you walk by a very old house that is no longer inhabited. What happened exactly in that house, on that street, in that graveyard? We never ask these questions. Oftentimes we can't even read the old script, But all I'm trying to say is there are lots of ruptures and our connection with the past is full of ruptures. I think that widespread amnesia is a problem and memory is a responsibility, not in order to get stuck in the past, of course not, but to learn from the past, both the beauties, but also we should be able to face the dark chapters in our history Mm. and to be able to come to grips with that, sometimes to grieve and mourn together and hopefully never ever again to make the same mistakes.
0: It's an interesting mixture, I guess, Istanbul, maybe like every city, maybe like every society of amnesia and memory. I have the sense that those who lean Kemalist, which for the audience is sort of in in the direction of the founder of the modern republic of Turkey, Kemal Ataturk, a sort of more li- liberal, well, autocratic but Western leaning uh, direction. There was a tendency to cling to a historical and mythological memory of the Turkish. People, the Turkic peoples, right? And that now there is a kind of political tendency with the regime in power to cling to aspects of the Ottoman past. And yet much is forgotten and ignored in in both cases.
1: I think Turkey is a mesmerizingly complex country. It is incredibly, incredibly multilayered and really very difficult to, to put in, in, in any category, frankly. However, um, I've been very vocal about this. When I look at where we are right now, I think the country has been going backwards, sliding backwards. As the authoritarianism of the state increased, intensified, there has been a very visible rise in nationalism, ultranationalism, religious fundamentalism, rigidity, intolerance, towards diversity, differences. And I think when this happens, when societies go backwards in this way, patriarchy is also emboldened. Sexism also increases. Homophobia also increases. Sometimes people think these are separate things. They are not. They go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Whenever, wherever we see a rise in ultranationalism, there will be a rise in sexism in that place. So um, there's lots we need to talk about. And maybe in many ways, what is happening or what has been happening in Turkey, perhaps also holds important lessons for progressives all around the world, because there are some similarities, you know. Of course, there are things that are unique to Turkey, but I see also patterns when I I look at Hungary, Poland, Venezuela, Brazil. Now, unfortunately, the list is quite long, and it is getting longer every year.
0: Including, to a large extent, the U.S., I would say.
1: Well, uh, there are lots of things that are happening in the US that bear a very strange similarity, you know, echoes. And I think the primary thing to remember, and I find this very important, is that until recently many people assumed that some parts of the world were solid lands. They were safe, steady, you know, democratic, they had already achieved egalitarianism and they didn't need to worry anymore about women's rights, minority rights. LGBTQ rights or freedom of speech, because they were already there. And some other parts of the world were regarded as liquid, like Turkey. And people thought these were the places where you needed to worry about freedom of speech. But I think after the year 2016, after Brexit happened, after Trump vote, and also after the, seeing the rise of populist nationalistic movements in country after country across Europe as well. Perhaps we can say more and more people in the West, too, realize there is no such thing as solid countries. In fact, we're all living in liquid times, like the late Zygmunt Bauman had told us. And I think none of us can take our rights for granted. In other words, history doesn't have to move in a linear way. Sometimes it draws circles, sometimes countries can go backwards, and perhaps democracy is far more fragile ecosystem than we initially assumed. So we have to put more effort in order to keep liberal democracies alive because now we know they can die.
0: In times like these, when we start to see these things in stark contrast, there is an easy temptation and a great danger that we respond to a kind of authoritarian impulse on the right with an authoritarian impulse from the left. Mm -hmm. It seems particularly important and complicated to defend the kind of non-binary positions Mm -hmm. that you sometimes talk about and that you're writing about in this book at these Mm -hmm. moments when things get so fraught.
1: Absolutely. And uh, as you said, sometimes there's a tendency on the left as well, among, among more progressive circles, I think we need to bear in mind that the answer to one kind of tribalism is not building another kind of tribalism of our own. And I think it's much better and healthier to try to transcend all kinds of tribalism. So I believe in humanism. I believe in a radical, brave, bold uh, and the new humanism and the new narrative, a new progressive narrative that also understands and appreciates multiplicity and diversity and inclusion. So perhaps that's one of the things that I'm worried about, you know, because of identity politics, tribes, we are being drawn into our own zones more and more, our own Mm. echo chambers. I don't want that, and I'm someone who passionately believes in multiple belongings. Of course, I'm an Istanbulite, you know, I'm always attached to Istanbul, it's in my heart. Uh, But at the same time, I feel very connected to the Aegean, the Balkans, Mm. put me next to a Greek author or or (laughs) someone coming from Bosnia, from Bulgaria or, or Romania. My God, I have so much in common. But then also, I have so many elements in my soul from the Middle East. I'm a European by birth, by choice. Over the years, I became a Londoner. And despite what Theresa May has been saying, I would like to think of myself as a citizen of the world and as a global soul. That doesn't mean you don't have an attachment. It means you have multiple attachments.
0: Part of the central premise of Three Daughters of Eve. So we go back and forth between the present day and Perry's time as an undergraduate at Oxford in a seminar on God with an unusual professor or a a challenging and interesting professor, Azul. He chooses God as this subject, as a kind of um, locus of Mm -hmm. ambiguity, Mm -hmm. of uncertainty, a place to Mm -hmm. open up conversations rather than than foreclose Mm -hmm. them.
1: In my novel, Three Daughters of Eve, I tell the stories of three young women. They all are students at Oxford University at the same time yet they come from different parts of the world, or I should say they come from different parts of the Muslim world. So there's Shirin, who is British Iranian, and she's the child of exiled parents who had to flee from Islamic fundamentalism, extremism, and bigotry, and dogmas. So Shirin herself is quite critical of all religions, in fact, but in particular she's critical of Islam because of the lack of gender equality. Uh, Then there is Mona, who is Egyptian-American, she wears a headscarf, she's a practicing Muslim and she complains about Islamophobia because this is something she experiences almost on a daily basis and she's on the receiving end of Islamophobia. Then there's Periye, as you mentioned, the Turkish girl who has questions about anything and everything. And jokingly, they call themselves the sinner, the believer, and the confused.
0: I immediately thought of the brothers Karamazov. I thought of... (laughs) I thought of Ivan, okay. Ivan as the yeah. sinner, Alyosha yeah. as the believer. Yeah, yeah. was that yeah. on somewhere yeah. in your mind as well?
1: Not directly, but it could have been indirectly because, yeah, uh, yeah of course, it's uh, the Karamazov brothers. It's it's it has left a big impact on me in my own literary okay. journey. Okay. So it might it might have affected me indirectly. But I think one of the questions that I wanted to raise was, okay, these girls are very different, but can they be sisters? Can they be? Friends, Can they find something in common, shared values? And this is a question that matters to me also because personally, because when I look at the Middle East in general or Turkey in particular, I realize women are also badly divided. Wherever politics is aggressive, very male-dominated and top-down divisive, I think women tend to become very divided as well. But when this happens in patriarchal countries and if women are divided. The only thing that benefits from this is patriarchy itself, sure. right? So I'm always longing for a new women's movement that brings on board women from very different backgrounds. And some of these women you know, might have different worldviews or views about faith and identity, but they have lots in common. And also, I'm longing for a new women's movement that always goes hand in hand with LGBT rights and a new women's movement that talks about, rather than men versus women, talks about masculinity and how the construction of masculinity can be a straitjacket. It is obvious to me that in patriarchal societies, women are unhappy, but men are unhappy as well, especially young men, especially young men who do not conform to the given hegemonic description of masculinity if you don't conform then your life as a young man can also be very very tough and sometimes women can take part in shunning young men who do not conform to that masculinity therefore this is much more complex and we definitely need a new narrative that brings men on board and and shows people that wherever there's patriarchy there's inequality wherever there's inequality there's unhappiness
0: you know in the book we get several glimpses into how masculinity is taught and performed within Turkish society. And I want to be very clear here that, you know, I grew up in America and there is plenty of toxic masculinity to go around here. But in every society, these things take on their own flavor. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can talk a little bit about masculinity as it happens in the turkey that you write about in this book, and sort of what it's doing to men and to women. Yeah, of
1: course. But as I'm listening to you, I I realized I didn't completely answer your previous question. Of course, of course. If you'll allow me, forgive me. Yeah, we can bounce back and forth. That's
0: okay. That's okay. (laughs) I
1: diverted a little bit. So in The Three Daughters of Eve, when I talk about the sinner, the believer, and the confused, I wanted to focus more on the journey of the confused, you know, and the confusions mm. of our times. But perhaps I also wanted to say, sometimes these are the different stages. I mean, you can see these as three different women, different right. individual individuals. But the sinner, the confused, and the believer can also be the different stages that we as individuals go through in our own particular lives. Maybe when you were younger, you were more of a believer, and then you became more of a sinner, and then maybe you became more of a confused, or, or, or vice versa. Life is a journey, and it is open-ended, and we're constantly changing. It is fluid. And one of the things that the book is critical of, or tries to emphasize, is this preoccupation with certainty. I think we live in an age in which we're constantly trying to look for certainty, and in which, as you said early on in your introduction, in which ambiguity is not appreciated enough because people associate ambiguity with weakness, as if you haven't made up your mind yet, as if you don't know enough yet, actually just the opposite. If there's room for ambiguity in your mind, it shows that you've been thinking about that issue even more and more in a much more nuanced and complex way. But if you'll allow me to express it differently, in the book, there's a passage where the professor criticizes people who are obsessed with certainty. And maybe what the story is trying to say is people who are very religious, they try to get rid of doubt and only want to hold on to their faith. But faith without doubt is a dogma and Mm -hmm. dogmas are extremely dangerous. On the other hand, perhaps people who are very fond of or extremely sure of their atheism They want to get rid of faith and hold on to doubt. But there are moments in our lives when we have secular acts of faith. Faith can be a secular act. For instance, when you move on to a new country without quite knowing why you're doing it, that's a secular act of faith. When you start writing a novel, you don't know if you're gonna succeed, where the story is going to take you, but you follow this instinct. It's a secular act of faith. When you fall in love with someone that is an act of faith, you know, you don't know if that person is the right person for you. So all I'm trying to say is rather than the certainties of either end, I think I also personally always felt closer to agnostics. People who were able to say, you know, let, let faith and doubt dance. Let them talk to each other. Don't separate them from each other that much. And let's see if they can challenge each other. To me, that is much more interesting intellectually. So I feel closer to agnostics, and also to those mystics who were very heterodox on the edge, who were a bit of misfits walking a very fine line between faith and doubt. I find that interesting as well. And maybe I, I need to also tell you that I'm not a religious person myself at all. I'm, I'm not a believer. I have too much doubt to be a believer. But I am uh, someone who likes faith and doubt to dance. Uh, and I also, I think, make a distinction between religiosity and spirituality. Religions particularly organized religions, collectivistic identities, that's not close to my heart at all. And the way they divide humanity into us versus them and assume that us is closer to truth or us is closer to God than them, that is not close to my heart. But spirituality is something else and it's very unique, very individual, like our fingerprints and everyone's journey will be very different. No one can judge that. So there's a part of me that's interested in spirituality without religiosity.
0: My sister passed away four or five years ago. And Mm -hmm. one of the last Mm -hmm. conversations I had with her was an argument (laughs) about, we had both had a bit to drink, and she was arguing for an agnostic position. And I was saying, well, What are you being agnostic with respect to? If you're being agnostic with respect to whether there was some creator of the universe, I see no reason to believe that over any other thing. And she was like, that's arrogance. How can Mm -hmm. you take that position? I was taking a position that you might call atheism, but that doesn't, that wouldn't necessarily mean that I'm not open to uncertainty or spiritual dimensions of reality. Just that the Mm -hmm. idea of God or Mm -hmm. a creator doesn't make a whole lot of sense.
1: I hear what you're saying and I respect what you're saying. What I am trying to say is, to think that our way is the right way and everyone else should follow our way is exactly where, where and when we start to make mistakes you know if you have arrived at this point after your own particular journey so for instance let's say you started as a christian mystic and you have now arrived at a point when you call yourself an atheist in my opinion that's a spiritual journey too and i will respect that who am i to judge you know <laughs> or it could or it could be the opposite maybe you will start as an atheist maybe you will end up as a jewish mystic or a, as a buddhist or as a you see what i mean if this is your personal journey I will only respect that. Of course I will. What I do not find close to my heart is when it becomes a collectivistic identity, a statement of certainty, saying this is the right way and everyone else should understand the right way. And if you cannot understand the right way, then you must be either ignorant or inferior. You know, when it comes to that level of certainty that unfortunately we hear uh, in many parts of the world today, I think that is when uh, things become extreme dangerous. So, wherever our spiritual journeys take us, actually I like that, I respect that, and and I find that a very fluid world, like water.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. I think what gets confusing for people is the fact that what you're calling a spiritual journey, it, it is necessarily subjective. Yeah. We want objective, I don't know we, I don't know what we I'm talking about, but mm-hmm. there is a seeming a hunger, at least mm-hmm. in the public space, for yeah. objective proof of, of this or that. And so it's very tempting and very seductive and very easy to turn mm-hmm. things which are and must be subjective into objective truths and try to defend them.
1: Absolutely. And and I find it very healthy that we keep questioning. We keep questioning our own truths, you know, never to be that sure of our own truths always keeping an open mind, an open heart, uh, and not to be too judgmental. To me, these are important. On the other hand, I, I'm i a progressive-minded person. I'm, I'm a progressive liberal, and I do believe that there are some issues, there are some subjects that the liberals uh, and the left have abandoned and neglected for too long. And faith mm. is one of those subjects. We can talk about faith in a new way. You know, to be honest, I think faith is way too important to leave it to the religious I think patriotism is way too important to leave it to the nationalists. Just Mm -hmm. like politics is way too important to leave it to career politicians. And I've started to think that technology and the digital world is way too important to leave it to tech companies and tech monopolies. I think in all these fields, we can have new thoughts, new narratives. And uh, as progressives, we need to talk about, you know, faith and patriotism in a completely new way. Otherwise, all these areas are being dominated by much more extremist and rigid views of more far right.
0: I mean, it will require great subtlety and great beauty yeah. and great, great nuance, which I have to say, complimenting you, I think you are uniquely capable of among, among people that I've heard speak about these things, to argue forcefully mm-hmm. for these things which are both definitive and open-ended, to mm-hmm. argue in the public space, which yeah. often lends itself better to sound bites for a kind of complexity.
1: Indeed, and I think that the way the media structure today also increases this, because let's look at the debates we see almost every day on TV. Usually you have two opposite views. Um, never agreeing on anything and each trying to win more votes from the audience. And then we, we count the votes. Who won? In all these debates there isn't a proper intellectual exchange. And even in academia, where we would expect more nuanced way of thinking, even there, when I look at the panels organized on both sides of the Atlantic, you have a speaker who is the pro and then the con, so you have two clashing views, and again, the audience deciding whom to follow. I don't like that at all. I'm always curious about, what about the third voice? What about the fifth voice or or the 99th voice? All I'm trying to say is this clashing certainties. We can do better than this. Uh, In the name of having higher ratings, we started to celebrate anger and mutually exclusive certainties, that is not going to get us anywhere. The practice of liberal democracy is also about coexistence, sometimes concessions to emphasize what we have in common and the world we're living in doesn't appreciate these things anymore. However, coming from a country like Turkey, I do know that when countries become extremely polarized and tribalistic, the people who benefit from that are the populist demagogues at the top. This is why it's not a coincidence that they always try to divide people into us versus them. It is not a coincidence that Nigel Farage, the day the Brexit vote was announced, he said the real people in Britain have spoken up, the decent people. That also means there's another people out there who are not the real people, who are not the decent people, who are they? You know, so we need to be very careful about this demagoguery that is constantly trying to divide the people into groups of real and unreal
0: taking it back into Three Daughters of Eve, Perry represents that kind of third way, or at least she's trying to represent it. I mean, yeah. she's, that, she's trying to be that middle way between certainties. Yeah. And, and I think it's notable and important that her life doesn't turn out perfect, really, by any means. Yes.
1: No, not at all, because first of all, I don't believe in heroes, you know, and I think as human beings, we're always struggling, learning we are learners, we're all passengers, and, and, or as James Baldwin would would say, we are commuters. I'd like to think of myself as a commuter as well. But perhaps about Perry in the book, I should say she's crushed under the weight of her own confusions. She doesn't celebrate confusion Mm. as a good thing. She Mm. doesn't feel ambiguity as a a positive potential rather than that she sees it as a burden and she doesn't know what to do with it. So our response to confusion can be different. Also maybe confusion can be a confusing word as well maybe I, i'd like to use <laughs> i'd like to use a different word i think we live in an age in which sometimes life feels everything feels too complicated so much is happening everywhere you know we turn on the news and we read news about something that happened in another part of the world there's a lot of uncertainty in the air today and we're bombarded with information We live in an age in which there is too much excessive information, less knowledge, and very, very little wisdom. I think information, knowledge, and wisdom are completely separate things. And we need to lessen our information because too much information is an obstacle in front of knowledge, because it gives us the illusion that we know something, but in fact knowledge is something else. So, let's reduce our information, let's increase our knowledge, and hopefully let's increase even further our wisdom. And wisdom requires, in my opinion, the mixture of the mind and the heart. It it requires empathy, it requires emotional intelligence. Now, why do I think this is a dangerous crossroads historically? Because we are living in in a very complex age in which there are lots of uncertainties. This is exactly when the demagogues enter into the picture. And what they're telling us you know, is, I'm gonna make things simple for you. I'm gonna make politics simple. I'm gonna make solutions simple, trade deals simple. I'm gonna make Brexit simple for you. And then we end up with this longing for simplicity or for those good old days when things felt safer and more simple and more manageable. But that is an illusion. And what the demagogues are selling us is this illusion that if we are surrounded by sameness, we will be safer. If we live in tribes based on sameness, our lives will be less uncertain. Life is complex. The era we're living in is complex. Let's accept it like that. And whether we like it or not, we are all connected. So rather than retreating into tribes and surrounding ourselves with walls, to me, it's much healthier to think of ourselves as global citizens, as much as citizens of our nation and work on lots of problems together, whether it's climate or terrorism or the refugee crisis, but understand and sometimes maybe celebrate even ambiguity, uncertainty, or or to understand that what we are being fed with right now is a bunch of lies. They're not going to make things simple for us.
0: I want to go deeper into something you were saying about the heart and the mind, the necessary connection of heart and mind. I think one of the problems that we have, I don't know if this is unique to the West or or not, but one of the problems that we have in trying to figure out what information, knowledge, Mm -hmm. slash wisdom to privilege Mm -hmm. in the public consciousness is, I think, related to the history of patriarchy and this kind of this approach to masculinity that historically has prioritized and separated thought, reason, intellect over emotion. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that those things are in any way uniquely the domain of men, nor that it is inherently masculine to try to be unemotional. But that's how it's been performed. That's how it's been lived. And that's how it's kind of been sold and so to speak in the public sphere about the connection of heart-mind which is in a sense the connection of the objective and the subjective that we were talking about before is something that's very very difficult to speak about because then the reaction coming out of this centuries of acculturation is, well, I don't know what you're talking about when you're talking about your heart. If you tell me about your mind, give me some ideas and give me a rational argument and a bunch of statistics, then we all know what we're talking about. But the moment we're talking about hearts and spirituality, then there's your truth and my truth and whatever. And eh, it's like, like you said, too complicated.
1: Definitely. But we need to unpack, right? What's going on? And I come from a culture, from a country Mm. where people think well women are emotional m- you know men are less emotional and that's nonsense i think as human beings we're all emotional creatures yes and it is wonderful and, and more natural to understand this and to embrace this but also there is some such a thing as negative emotions such as anger fear resentment anxiety bitterness and we live in an age in which negative emotions guide and also misguide politics That's true. So this is the right time for us to talk about emotions. My background is in political science, and because I'm I'm a novelist, I've always appreciated or maybe paid more attention to emotions and feelings or perceptions. And I found this conversation very difficult in the Department of Political Science to carry out because we are so obsessed with data, 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 you know, empirical quantitative data almost fetishizing data, by yes. no means. I am not underestimating the importance of academic research. I have always respected you know, knowledge, the accumulation of knowledge, so of course I respect it tremendously. But all I'm saying is it's not enough to right. understand the world. We cannot solely rely on numbers. And let's take a step further. There is a lot in today's world that cannot be reduced to numbers and yet plays a huge role in the changes in our political landscape and cultural landscape. So, what am I talking about? Primarily, I'm talking about culture, primarily, I'm I'm talking about emotions and perceptions. You cannot measure these things easily, and yet they matter. They matter tremendously. So, I sincerely believe we need to put more emotional intelligence on the table when i look at our politicians I'm sad to say particularly sometimes female politicians to prove how strong they are in a male dominated world, understandably, I understand that psychology, but we need to go beyond that psychology. Sometimes they also suppress their emotions a lot in the name of looking strong. Maybe one exception that immediately comes to my mind is Jacinda Ardern from New Zealand, who does show her emotions more. But for instance, when I look at Theresa May or Angela Merkel, I see many female politicians not being very easily able to reflect their emotions. But if I may take uh, another step forward, honestly, it pisses me off that oftentimes populist demagogues are doing a better job in terms of connecting with people's emotions than their liberal counterparts. We need to understand that we need to speak with our mind and with our heart together. Of course, I need the facts. Of course, I need statistics and research and intelligence. But at the same time, I should be able as a human being to bring out my emotions when I say something. And what I have observed Mm. over the years, I've given many talks in different countries. If you only base your talk on information, and there's scientific research that proves this, in the next hour, people forget most of what you've said. And the next day, they have forgotten even more of it. But if you convey the same information through emotions, you know, putting also your heart in it, they will remember, because they will remember the feeling, what they felt when they heard that information.
0: I think that this is as good a place as we could possibly find to go to the second part of the show, which for the audience is where Elif and I will watch a surprise video from Big Things interview archives. And neither of us has seen this before. It was chosen by Big Things producers. We're going to watch it and then just see where the conversation goes from there. And this is comedian Pete Holmes on the Me Too movement, accountability, and binary thinking. So it definitely touches on some of the things that we've, we've talked about, but maybe goes to some new places, too.
2: Obviously, we're going through a spiritual evolution right now, and that involves a lot of suffering on everybody's part. And that's, and that's where growth comes. I mean, we'd all like to increase pleasure and minimize pain, but the truth is suffering, even collective suffering that we're going through, is often the earmark that some real change is happening. When I look at um, what's happening with Me Too, my heart breaks basically for everybody involved. I think it's interesting. I did a radio show where we were talking about Louis, And it was so interesting to me to see the comedians that saw Louis as a symbol of artistic freedom. They were sort of arguing, he doesn't have to apologize. And then I was saying, you're absolutely right, he doesn't. But wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be great if he did? Because like it or not, he's sort of become a symbol. And I I know he never asked for that, but he's become a symbol. And if he shared his growth, and by the way, I'm a Louis optimist, I, I think he's capable of doing this. And if he sees this, I hope that he will, and I'm hopeful that he will. I actually think he might. If he uses this platform and this becoming of a symbol to share his growth and his suffering and his development and his evolution, like it or not, I know he never asked for that, um, there's, there's probably millions of people that would take that in a positive way, that would kind of unhinge some of their calcified spots and, and maybe they'd grow with him. Does he have to do that? No. But this is my point. So to these comedians, Louis represent no, represents, nobody tells me what I can talk about, right? Because he went back on stage and he was making all these sort of dark jokes and people were like, why isn't he talking about his, his abuse and what he did? And they were like, he doesn't have to. And I was like, ah, okay. So to them, he's a symbol of liberty, agency, artistic freedom, great, fine. To other people though, and we need to sit in the middle of these things, not either or, it needs to be both and. To other people, he represents abusers. And, the, and page one of the Abuser Handbook, especially if it's in your family, is if you're abused, and he feels like he's in our family, doesn't he? He's like, a, he's like a relative, he's in our homes, he's on our phones, he's in our ears, he's part of us. And so he feels familial. And if you're going to do something like that, and we all know it, And if an abuser acts like nothing happened, that's page one of the abuser's handbook, is to be at Thanksgiving and just act like it didn't happen. So you're opening up a cosmic wound. So to this side, Louis becomes a symbol of deceit and abuse. Where's the truth? It's somewhere in the middle. Because on this side, I see people going, I feel the fear going, if this is how we're going to whip this person for his ugliness and his... Ugliness is the right word. How, how are they going to respond to my ugliness? Maybe if it's not even of the same caliber, but it makes us afraid. Is this what we're going to do? Are we going to beat people up? Are we going to spit on them and shame them and strip them of everything? We get afraid. But I also, my heart breaks, obviously, for the people that are going, this is bringing up a global unconsciousness. When I see him, I see my abuser. That break, I, breaks my heart. But the truth is definitely somewhere in the middle. And it's a lot, it's a lot quieter, I think, than we're being, because it's real fun to ring all the bells and bang all the pots, and it feels like we're casting out demons. But I, you know, I think Martin Luther King was right when light, light casts out darkness, you know what I mean? And it's, it's, it, we feel so impotent and futile, especially with the president talking about grabbing pussies and we're like, we can't, we can't seem to affect that. Well, let's marshal ourselves. Can we clean up this? And I hope we can and I hope we change. And then I also can, I'm trying to also understand both sides. And I think that's important because we're a very binary world. We love being either or, you're either Red Sox or Yankees. You see it even in sexuality, you're either gay or straight, you're either male or female. And this fucking world especially when psychological wounds are at play, is so much more mysterious than we're giving it credit for. And we want to walk around and go like, no, Louis is a monster. Let's, let's burn him alive. And then they're like, Louis didn't do anything wrong. Okay, guys, let's, let's settle down and go, what now? What next? How are we going to change and grow for this? I have a daughter. How are we going to change for this? I don't need a daughter, by the way. Fuck that. I take that back. I cared before I had a daughter. Fuck that shit. I hate when pastors have a gay son and then they become pro-gay. Fuck that shit. Be converted before the conversion experience. That's a big, you know, like Green Book, you go on a road trip with a black guy and you become less racist? Fuck that. We don't have time for you to go on a road trip with every transgender or sexual abuse victim. Be converted now. Start loving now and then rationalize it later, we don't have time. There's too many people that need love and understanding for you to go on 75,000 road trips.
1: I honestly believe this is where we need the art of storytelling even more because when you know someone's story, you will be less judgmental. To understand how that person arrived at that point and to have the cognitive flexibility to see things from different perspectives and to be able to empathize very much lies at the heart of the art of storytelling. And I'm someone who by nature likes to build bridges and always tries to think in a much more nuanced way. However, I am also someone who is very aware of power relations. to say that, well, there are two stories to the same issue, maybe, but it doesn't mean that two stories have the same power. Sometimes one of those stories will be the story that nobody hears. One of those stories will be the story that is suppressed and erased and forgotten and pushed to the margins. So my work, my wish is to give more voice to people who have been Voiceless. And also, I come from a culture that constantly blames the victims. You know, in Turkey, particularly in Turkey, when the victim of sexual abuse goes to the police, she will be accused most of the time. When she goes to the court, not only the victims, but even female lawyers can be scolded by judges because for the length of their skirts, and people will be asking to the victim, what were you wearing on that night? Why were you out at that hour of the night? So there isn't an equal power relation here, and it's much more difficult for the victims, whether they are men or children or women, but for people who have been disempowered, it is harder for them to come forward and to share their stories in the public space. Of course, for me it's important non-binary way of thinking, trying to understand multiple perspectives, and the truth is the accumulation of all those perspectives. So we need that cognitive flexibility. But at the same time, we need to be aware of the power relations and structures and structured racism, sexism, homophobia that makes it much more difficult for some people to come forward and share their stories. And usually those people are the minorities who don't feel like they're part of the majority and who are not given an equal voice. I think storytellers should be interested not only in stories, but also silences. The things we cannot talk about, whether it's political taboos, cultural taboos, or sexual taboos. And I also think it's the writer's job to ask questions about these issues. Not to preach, not to teach, try to teach anything. I find that very off-putting. I don't even know the answers myself, but I do know that the questions matter. So there's a part of me that wants to ask questions about taboos, sexual taboos included, and then open up a space, a democratic space in my novels and allow a plurality of voices and stories come forward and always leave the answer to the reader. Now, because I write about issues like sexual harassment, child abuse, child brides, domestic violence, um, my work is at the moment being investigated by a prosecutor in Turkey. It's difficult sometimes for fiction writers not only to write about political taboos, I, I had a taste of that when I published The Bastard of Istanbul and my book was put on trial and my fictional characters had to be defended by my lawyer in the courtroom because the words of fictional characters were taken out of context. Because that book was questioning a political taboo, talking about the Armenian Genocide. Armenian
0: Genocide, yeah.
1: But this time, it's also, I'm trying to say, people know that it's difficult to talk about political taboos, but perhaps sometimes people don't realize that it can be equally challenging to talk about sexual taboos or sexuality, and particularly for women writers.
0: And in these cases where your book's being under under investigation for talking about sexual abuse and child brides and so on, that's on a charge of obscenity?
1: Obscenity, but of course, it's, it's just... So what's happening is, in a way, something both new and old, because we have these undemocratic laws, uh, but at the same time, something new is happening. It's a mixture of the dark side of the digital world and undemocratic laws. Words and and sentences are plucked, taken out of novels, words related to sexual abuse, and then these are being circulated on social media, mostly by bots and trolls, saying, you know, what kind of an indecent, immodest, or you know, woman is writing these sentences. So when a woman writer writes these sentences, you yourself are you are directly accused of being indecent yourself. And meanwhile, a prosecutor is investigating to see if we have committed the crime of obscenity, me and other fiction writers. So it's these are very difficult conversations, and yet I, I do believe that we need to tell these stories. Uh, and I try to give, tell these stories through the eyes of the victims. To me, it's important to bring the periphery to the center. And the biggest tragedy for me the way I see it, this is happening in a country in which we already have a serious problem related to sexual harassment. The number of cases of, of gender based violence in Turkey increased by 1,400% in the last eight years. 1,400% really? increase. One out of every three marriages in Turkey involves an underage girl, a child bride recently, just a few months ago, the legislators in Turkey, and this is happening in Lebanon, this is happening in many parts of the Middle East, they tried to pass a law. Well, it it backfired, and they couldn't. But their idea was they tried to reduce the sentence of rapists, should the rapists agree to marry their victims, as if they're doing them a favor. So, the legislators who are trying to pass these laws, They only have this abstract and and horrific notion of honor, family honor. That's all they care about. They never think about the victims, you know, what the young women are, are going through. And it's almost like sentencing the victims to a lifetime of rape. Instead of changing these patriarchal laws, instead of opening shelters for abused women and children, instead of helping the victims in the court. The authorities are investigating fiction writers who dare to explore these subjects in their work. And to me, that is the biggest, the saddest part of this. But coming back to the Me Too movement, I passionately believe that Me Too movement was incredibly important, but we have not been able to carry it to the next stage. And the next stage, the reason why after a while it felt stuck is also related to identity politics and tribalism. I lived in Boston for a while, and then I lived in Michigan and in Arizona. But what, especially when I was in Boston, I, in in archives, I was constantly reading about African American women's movement of 1960s and 70s. And it taught me a lot. And when you read their works, because many of them were women of color, they were on the receiving end of racism and they knew how racism worked. Because many of them were women, they knew how sexism worked. Because many of them were LGBTQ, they knew how homophobia or transphobia worked. But also because many of them came from disadvantaged or disempowered backgrounds, they knew how class hierarchy and discrimination worked. So when you read their work, there's an emphasis on complexity. They talk about power structures in a much more nuanced and multi-layered mm. way than we do today. And their solution, the way forward, is always through multiplicity. To make it more clear, for instance, when you read Audre Lorde, I, yes. I love Audre Lorde and I respect her tremendously. So she says, you know, I'm a poet, I'm a woman, I'm a mother, I'm a writer, I'm a lesb- I'm lesbian, and I'm many more things. I contain multitudes, just like Walt Whitman used to say. James Baldwin did the same thing. When a journalist asks him about being gay, I love his answer when he says, you know, don't you see there's nothing in me that isn't also present in you. We aren't that different. In all these statements, there's an emphasis on multiplicity. I think today in women's movement, we are forgetting the emphasis on multiplicity. We have stopped saying I contain multitudes. We need to do that. So we need a new global narrative, a new global women's movement that also bridges the gaps between women of different cultures, because there are major gaps there and inequalities. We need a new women's movement that goes hand in hand with LGBTQ rights, but also, as I said, understands masculinity, how that is constructed and how that makes men unhappy and sometimes doesn't give them any freedoms. And it's like a straitjacket. And how also mental health affects Particularly, a growing number of young men, both in America and in Europe, we need to understand why. If we don't, sorry, I, I'm just going on no, please, and on, but, uh, but, but I really feel passionate about this and. For me, it's very important to have a new feminist narrative that also brings men on board and encourages people to look at inequality together.
0: And if I may, it seems to me, and I was thinking this during the video when he was talking about like, it's a little bit of this and it's a little bit of that, that not exactly. It's this and it's that and it's that and it's that all at the same time. And right,
1: right. But they don't have the same power. Let us right, not forget right, that. Right, right, right. So, of course, all these stories matter, you know, and we need to be able to hear all those stories uh, and then make up our minds, perhaps. But at the same time, bear in mind they don't have the same kind of authority or power or advantage in the society. So, to me, it makes sense if we really believe in equality, it makes sense to me to give more voice to the voiceless.
0: Elif Shafak, thank you so much for your time today and for being on this show and for your bravery, your courage, your, your words and the fight that, that you're trying to fight, which I know many people are fighting it in different ways, but I don't know anyone who's fighting it quite like you.
1: It was such a pleasure to talk to you. you know? Thank you for having me. Thank you.
0: Whether you're new here or you've been with us for a while, I would love to hear from you. Come to my website. It's jasongots.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-G-O-T-S.com. You can sign up for my mailing list. You can send me an email directly. Either way, I'd love to stay in touch. We will be back next week with something very, very different. And I hope you can join me.